smartphone or an outline or can look at the screen. I'm switching the guns, Goose. <laughs> I love it. All the children of the 80s got it. Okay, Mark chapter 11, verse 1. Here we go. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside of the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to him, What are you doing, untying the colt? And they told him what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Wow. Let's begin briefly with the final part of that account with the shout, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You know what it means, the shout, the word Hosanna? Uh, it's a little bit difficult to, to translate as many Hebrew words are into English. But basically it means save or come and save. Hosanna is a cry for salvation. Come rescue, come save. That's essentially what's being cried out by the crowd around in front and behind Jesus. And that is essentially, wouldn't you agree, what it means to embrace the kingdom of God. It's, it, we could say that's a very good definition, in fact, of what it means to embrace what God is doing in the world. Hosanna, God, come and save. Come and rescue. Come and save me. Come and rescue me. Come and heal. Come and transform, right? Well, that serves for us a very good lead-in to the season of Lent, right? This week, we will recognize Ash Wednesday, which marks the beginning of Lent, the traditional 40-day period leading up to Easter. And Lent is traditionally observed by Christians um, as a time of reflection, as a time of turning toward the Lord, um, as a time of introspection. Uh, the, the Greek word is metanoia. It's often translated into English as repent. That's a really unfortunate translation because the meaning of the English word repent tends to convey this idea of sorrow and, and grief and that kind of thing. That's not at all what's conveyed by the Greek word metanoia. It simply means to think about your thinking. So, so to repent in the, in the strictest understanding would mean to turn your direction and think about your thinking, turn away from the direction that you've been going and go in the direction of the kingdom of God. So this is, this is the basic vibe in the air for Christians throughout the period of Lent. And so what we're going to be doing for this season of Lent is we're going to take the time and go through day by day the events of Jesus in Jerusalem during the week leading up to ultimately to his crucifixion and ultimately leading to Resurrection Sunday. And so we're going to be studying through this season uh, the seven days of Jesus in Jerusalem day by day by day. And along the way, 
I'm going to be following as closely as I can. We're going to use the Gospel of Mark. Uh, so if you want to kind of read and get ahead of the class, we're going to be focusing on the Gospel of Mark. Um, and, and, and that's because among all the Gospel writers, uh, Mark tends to be more overt in the way he tells the story of that final week in Jerusalem. He tends to be more overt about this happened on this day, and then this, this happened on this day, and this happened on this day. It's almost like a, a calendar journal, the way he records it. And so we're going to follow his lead there and look day by day by day. And as we go for this, for this study, I'm going to be following as closely as I can uh, with what we know about the historical and cultural backdrop uh, of the, the realm of Palestine, the history, uh, what was going on in the time and the place, particularly uh, in Jerusalem. I'm going to be following the cultural context of these events, and I'm going to be weaving that in as much as I can, perhaps more than usual, the real-time backdrop and context for these scenes. And I think, I hope, um, that what we'll see uh, by all of that, by understanding more of the history and the context, I think we'll all gain a richer, fuller, deeper understanding of not just the events themselves, um, but a richer, deeper, fuller understanding of Jesus himself, of what Jesus was passionate about. Passionate about. I think we'll see more, a richer, fuller understanding of why it is that Jesus was ultimately killed. Um, and then, in particular, the meaning of his crucifixion. So, that's what we're going to be focusing on for the next uh, several weeks here as we recognize the season of Lent. So, the story. How did we get here? How do we get to this point of what we just read here in, uh, in the Gospel of Mark? How do we arrive at this cry of Hosanna? Well, to back up a little bit, Jesus is traveling with his entourage toward the city of Jerusalem from, most recently from Jericho into uh, Jerusalem. It's Passover time, and Jesus and his crew are going to Jerusalem to observe this most important annual feast for the Jewish people. And of course, as we just read, before they arrive strictly into Jerusalem, Jesus stops the whole entourage uh, and sends ahead for this, for this donkey. They bring the donkey back to him, uh, and he rides into Jerusalem on this small, borrowed, young donkey colt with people laying down their coats in front of him, laying down leafy branches, rolling out the red carpet, as it were, uh, in the ancient world, and they are crying out, as we read, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David, Hosanna in the highest. And we get this additional detail from Matthew's account of the same event. Matthew 21, he says, when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Who is this? Indeed, this is the question. And not just for them but for us as well. It's well worth asking this question. In fact, again and again and again, who is this? Who is this Jesus? Who is this carpenter turned rabbi from the peasant town Nazareth in the backwoods region of Galilee? Who is this? And the answer given here, of course, in, in the text is striking. The answer that's given here is, oh, this is the prophet 
Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. You know, we don't often think of the fact that Jesus was a prophet. We tend to focus on Jesus as Savior, Jesus as King, and that's certainly true as well. But it might help us a little bit to appreciate for a moment um, that Jesus was also a prophet. Jesus was a prophet very much in the history and the lineage uh, and the ethos of the Jewish prophets. He very much held that ancient tradition together in his own ministry. You know, in the broad kind of three-part taxonomy, when we think about um, the key players in God's story, we think about prophets, priests, and kings. And Jesus certainly is a fulfillment of the priestly and kingly aspect, but he also is the fulfillment of the office and the role of the prophet. And there are differences between priests and kings and prophets. Priests and kings, just to summarize, priests and kings tend to operate within the structures, whether the structures of religion or the structures of politics, that kind of thing. The priest and the king operates from within the system, within the structure, but the prophet very much operates outside the structure, outside the structures of religion, outside the structures of uh, the political uh, realities. And very often, don't you know, the prophet stands as a critic of the existing systems. And Jesus is very much functioning in that way in his ministry. This is why, you know, sometimes prophets do eventually become quite popular, but usually that's not until after they're dead. <laughs> Most of the time, in real time, prophets aren't appreciated very much because they stand so much as a, as a critique of the existing systems, whether systems of religion or systems of politics or how it is that the world is currently arranged. No, for most of the time, in fact, in the history of God's people, when the prophet is alive, they are most of the time despised, misunderstood, rejected, uh, at least by the establishment, and very often the prophets were killed. And so make no mistake here that what Jesus is doing in this moment, in his entrance into Jerusalem, uh, this is an example of Jesus functioning in a very prophetic way. This is actually quite dangerous what Jesus is doing. Why is it dangerous? It's because, think about it just for starters, as the people around Jesus, as he's coming into Jerusalem, think about what these people are shouting. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They are shouting about the coming, the, 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 the coming kingdom of our father David, right? So this is what the crowd around Jesus, uh, we're excited about the, the coming kingdom of our, father, of our father David. Why is this a problem? Well, it's because Jerusalem already has a king, and his name is Herod. And he serves under the auspices of the occupying Roman uh, Empire, right? At this time, Israel is occupied by the Roman Empire. Caesar is over in Rome, and he has his designated uh, uh, designees who function as governors, etc., throughout the, the Roman world. And in the land of Palestine, at least in this aspect where Jesus is, uh, the, 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 the designated ruler of the region, designated by Caesar at this particular time, is King Herod. He is the king of this region. And of course, he's serving under the auspices of Caesar, the emperor of Rome, who is not only a king, in the eyes of many, in fact, Caesar is seen as a god, right? This is, this is intense business. And so, what Jesus is doing here, and what these people are doing here, the people around Jesus, this is extremely 
dangerous. This is not some harmless religious sideshow. This is, in fact, a direct challenge to the legitimacy and the authority of Rome and of Caesar. This kind of thing will get you killed. And, of course, that's exactly what would happen five days later. Uh, you may not be aware of this, or you may be aware of this, but actually um, on this day in ancient Jerusalem, there were two processions into Jerusalem, um, or perhaps at least in the same, in the same week. Um, one of the processions into Jerusalem was the procession of Jesus that we just read about. The other procession into the city of Jerusalem was the procession of Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of the region of Palestine. And we, and we know this from other historical sources like the writings of Josephus, the ancient Jewish historian, and even the Dead Sea Scrolls shed some light on this historical context and background. Pontius Pilate uh, was a designated governor of the region of Palestine, and he lived out on the Mediterranean coast not in the hub city of Jerusalem, and I suppose there are many reasons for that. Uh, maybe he felt like there was better weather, better climate, certainly more beautiful views uh, of the Mediterranean. But perhaps most importantly, um, out on the coast, uh, the populace was much more favorable to the occupying Roman uh, uh, forces. In Jerusalem, there was much resistance, most of it based upon uh, religious resentment for even the presence of the pagan Romans in their region, but not so much on the coast. Maybe, maybe like it is today, the people on the coast are just more laid back in general, right? So Pontius Pilate, that's where he lived, out on the coast and not in Jerusalem. But it was customary for Roman officials to come into Jerusalem during the times of the Jewish religious feasts. The Roman officials would come into Jerusalem for these times of, of Jewish religious observance, not because they had any sympathy for the faith of the Jewish people, but because very often it was the case that during these um, uh, Jewish religious festivals, the sense of nationalism and the sense of um, religious pride would kind of heat up during the time of these feasts. And very often there was civic unrest uh, by the Jewish people who simply resented the presence of Rome, the presence of the pagans in their country, in their holy city, et cetera, et cetera. And so it was customary uh, for the Roman officials to come into Jerusalem during the Jewish feast times and to bring legions of soldiers to beef up the local ordinary garrison of soldiers there in Jerusalem. And so, as was common practice, Passover after Passover, year after year, Pontius Pilate brings his procession into Jerusalem for this Passover. And this is, of course, uh, the most important annual religious feast of the Jewish people. It's the time once a year when the Jewish people recognize the historical events when God swept in uh, when the Jewish people were enslaved in Egypt under the thumb of Pharaoh and God swept in and basically overnight rescues them out of Egyptian slavery uh, and into a people of their own, indeed a people of his own, a people of God's own. These are the events that were recognized year after year. This is a freedom festival for the Jewish people. And of course, this story is known all too well by the Roman governor Pilate uh, and, and the others associated with him. They know all of this history and they realize they can put two and two together and they can recognize that Rome is the modern day Egypt 
And Caesar is the modern-day Pharaoh. They get the idea. They know exactly what the religious uh, Jewish mindset is with regard to their then contemporary circumstance. They can put two, two and two together and see all that. So Pilate is coming into town with a legion of Roman soldiers to reinforce the garrison there in Jerusalem during this Passover observance just to make sure things don't get out of control. All right, so let's imagine the scene of Pilate's entry into Jerusalem. He's coming from the west, coming from the coast, and he's accompanied by horses, cavalry, soldiers, chariots, swords, banners, on and on. You get the idea. Think about the, the sights that you would see. You would see eagles mounted on poles. This is the symbol of Rome, Rome's might and Rome's power. Also the symbol of uh, the god Jupiter. Uh, you would see soldiers wearing metal helmets that would glisten and sparkle in the sun. You would see the gold and the dazzling silver, intimidating heavy metals and helmets and shields and swords and weapons of war and on and on as this procession comes into Jerusalem. Imagine the sounds, the sounds of horses' hooves rumbling in the dust and rumbling along the stone pathways, the creaking of leather, the clanging of metal and the weapons of war. Imagine the local people standing along the roadside watching this pageant of imperial power. Some look on with fear and awe, and some look on with quiet but seething resentment as Pilate comes into town. Pilate's procession into Jerusalem communicates in sights and sounds all of the messages of power and strength, and prestige, and glory, and pride. And this is the very power that is oppressing the people, ruling over them, taxing them, impoverishing them, taking away their lands, taking away their livelihoods, taking away their wealth. And all the while, this procession and what it represents, they're simply thumbing their nose at the God of the Jewish people. You see, above all else, in addition to all of this, Rome is also claiming an alternative theology. For them, for the Roman people, if you talk about someone who is the son of God, the savior, the Lord, who brings peace on earth, you're talking about Caesar. That's who Caesar is for them. Caesar is revered as God. Caesar is Lord. Caesar is savior. Caesar is the one who has brought and is bringing peace on earth. And so, this is one of the processions that came into Jerusalem on that day, on Palm Sunday, or thereabout. What about the other procession? Well, the other procession was the procession of Jesus when he comes in to Jerusalem. And Jesus came in to Jerusalem, can we just say, he came in from the opposite direction in more ways than one, right? Pilate came in from the west. Jesus came in from Jericho in the east. Jesus came into Jerusalem riding not on a war horse, but on a donkey. Actually, 
a young donkey, a small, small donkey. This is what a simple person would ride. This is what a humble person would ride, a humble means of transportation for a small, poor, humble person. In Jesus' procession into Jerusalem, there are no precious metals, no gold, no silver, no chariots, no swords. There's no impressive show of prestige or dominance or power. And yet, this is the procession, in fact, of the king of all kings. This, in fact, is the Lord of all. This, in fact, is the Son of God with a capital S and a capital G. And can we just take a moment and appreciate the fact that Jesus planned this in advance? Like he was walking into the city, but before arriving, he said, stop, we got to do this right. We're going to be intentional about this. He was intentional about setting up this entire humble and highly ironic scene. In fact, Jesus had long before looked into the ancient scriptures, the Jewish scriptures, and had found this prophecy from Zechariah about the anticipated Messiah, the deliverer of the people of God. And he found this. We find it in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And when Jesus looked into that ancient prophecy from old Zechariah, Jesus knew immediately that Zechariah had nailed it, spot on. Zechariah had seen something not just about how it is that God's deliverer would behave in particular. Zechariah had seen something not just about a mode of transportation on a particular day, but Zechariah had seen something far deeper than that. Zechariah had seen something essential to the heart and character of God himself. Gentleness, humility, goodness, and above all, peace. And so, before entering the city, the city that Zechariah says in another, another place, Jerusalem, he says, will be called the city of truth. Jesus says, stop, we're going to do this right. And so, Jesus, standing firmly in the ancient tradition of the Jewish prophets, he chooses and orchestrates this stunning scene, which is actually unforgettable. It's dramatic. It's ironic. This is prophetic performance art. It is packed with irony. Kings don't ride donkeys. Kings ride war horses, and everybody knows that, right? Royalty doesn't ride on a donkey, and yet this king does. There's even an element of comedy in this scene, if you're willing to go there. Remember, this is not just a donkey. This is a young donkey, a colt of a donkey. Donkeys are small even at full maturity, right? But this donkey would have been super, super small. Some donkeys are too small, even for, at full maturity, for a full-grown man to ride. 
And yet this, was, this donkey was smaller than one at full maturity, probably very, very small. So if you're willing, I think you're on safe ground. If you imagine Jesus riding this little bitty donkey, even having to hold his feet up in the air so they wouldn't drag on the ground. I mean, he's riding this little bitty donkey, right, with his feet hanging up in the air, right? So there's a, there's a certain comedy. Now he's almost lampooning Pontius Pilate who had ridden into town from the other side on his big, let's just imagine a big white war stallion, Pontius Pilate rides in, and here's Jesus coming into town on the little donkey. Oh, come on now, that's, that's just funny. He's almost lampoon, lampooning, he's almost poking at Pontius Pilate. More importantly, he's poking at Pontius Pilate's theology. He's poking at Pontius Pilate's Caesar, ultimately. This is all intentional. All of this is engineered to make a statement, and it is a bold counterstatement against the other procession that came into Jerusalem for that Passover. Pilate's procession said, here comes God into your city, and God looks like this, power, prestige, swords, weapons of war, silver, shiny, clanging, intimidating. And Jesus says, no. Here comes the true king. Here comes God into your city. He's right here. This is the kingdom of the coming king into Jerusalem. This is true power. It's the power of humility, the power of smallness, the power of love, the power of peace, the power of restorative justice. And there is absolutely nothing intimidating about Jesus' procession into Jerusalem. Jesus says here, here is the heart of God. This is what the reign of God looks like. This is what the peaceable kingdom of God looks like. Because you know what? Jesus read not only Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, as we just read, but he continued to read, and he knows how Zechariah finished off that thought. He says this, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. See, Jesus saw all of that in Zechariah's prophecy. He saw all of that in the heart and character of God. So before we take the next step forward, and I want to offer you some thoughts in interacting with this, I just want you to consider this question, don't answer out loud, but does the historical context here make a difference? Does weaving in some of the backdrop and some of the real-time realities that Jesus was interacting with, does it cause us to read maybe a little bit differently based on understanding more about the context? I think it matters a great deal. See, if we didn't know the historical context and we read this account, we might there's any number of things we might think. We might think, well, maybe Jesus was just tired, and instead of walking the last little bit of the journey, he wanted to ride instead. We might think of it like that. Or we might simply think that Jesus was, well, Jesus was just checking off all the ancient prophetic boxes so that everyone who came after him would know that he really was the Messiah because he fulfilled all of these ancient prophecies. We might think it's something like that, but that's not what's going on here at all. Jesus is making a prophetic statement, ironic, uh, deeply subversive and challenging 
to the powers that be, a statement about the agenda of God over against the agenda of empire, the agenda of Caesar. And so, having recognized that, I just want to offer you three thoughts just from just in my own interaction with all of this. And I just want to give you three, three words. Well, the first one is, I guess, a phrase. Um, the first one is, just write on your outline the words, for us. Listen, everybody, Jesus did this for us. Um, first, of course, it was for the people of that place and that time. He wanted them to be free from the oppression of Rome and beyond that, the oppression that results from turning away from God in any capacity. But also recognize that in making this bold, dramatic, subversive statement, Jesus is doing this for us. He wants ultimately all of humanity to be free. He wants ultimately all of humanity to be liberated. And let me back up a little bit and explain that. When you fast forward just a little bit, next week we'll get to talk about the next day in what we call Holy Week. Next week we'll be able to talk about Monday. And we're going to see that on Monday, the picture here actually becomes fuller and perhaps more complete because on Monday, Jesus is going to go into the temple and stage another breathtaking prophetic protest. So Jesus starts off Holy Week with this twofer. First, in coming into the city, he challenges imperial theology. He challenges Caesar. And then on Tuesday, he's going to go into the temple uh, and challenge the whole religious enterprise. So he starts off Holy Week with quite a splash. But in both cases, Jesus is doing what he's doing because he sees these systems, these systems which are legitimated by religion. They present themselves as benevolent toward the people, but in reality, they are oppressing the people. And so Jesus starts off Holy Week by protesting both of these systems. Why? Because his heart is for people to be free. In both cases, the power of Rome and the power of the temple system, these are both social powers that have put in, been put in place that are ultimately oppressing people. Jesus sees them for what they are. Jerusalem, Zechariah said, Jerusalem is the city of truth, and Jesus is bringing the painful truth to the city of Jerusalem. So in short, Jesus is actually subverting these giant social and religious systems because he is for people. He is for the outsiders. He is for those who are overlooked. Jesus is the champion of the underdog. He's the hero for the hurting. He's the one who backs those who are on the bottom. He's ultimately the savior of the weak. And so, when you envision this moment, Jesus riding on a donkey on Palm Sunday, please know that Jesus is intentionally opposing the powerful for the sake of the weak. This is for us. This is for our benefit, for our liberation, for freedom from those, for, for, for all of us, from any and all oppressive powers. So, that's kind of my first observation that ultimately this is for us, for them then and there, yes, but ultimately for us. The second word, you can write this on your outline, is just write the word weakness. I want to say a word about weakness. 
Jesus over and over and over again, it's undeniable. Jesus is the humble savior of the weak. Jesus said in one place that he came for the sick because the healthy don't need a doctor. Only the sick need a doctor, he said. Now, in truth, when it comes to humans, we're all sick in one way or another or two ways or three ways. But the point is, I think in that interaction, the point is that some humans don't recognize it, right? Some of us do recognize our brokenness and some of us don't. And therefore, we have trouble embracing salvation. We have trouble sometimes embracing a doctor. And so there is something essential to embracing the Jesus movement that I think is easily missed by those of us who are comfortable, bourgeois, middle-class Americans, right? Salvation is for the poor. It's for the weak. It's for the desperate. It's for the small. It's for the vulnerable. It's for the needy. So I'm forced to say, well, is that me? <laughs> and then it's important for me to pause before I answer. It's important for me to pause before I answer that question because I spend so much time, right, trying to present and even convince myself and convince my others around me that I am not needy, that I am not vulnerable, that I am not broken, that I am not desperate. And yet here comes one of those opportunities where it becomes crucially important before I answer too quickly. Because Jesus is the humble king who comes for the weak. He's the one who comes for the sick because the healthy don't need a doctor. And so when I'm faced with that question, I don't answer too quickly. Is that you, Kenyon? Yeah, that's me. I'm broken. I'm vulnerable. I'm needy. I am desperate and in need. Right? See what's going on there? So let's take another look at this scene. Do you have that picture, Terry? The painting? This is a painting by an artist named Emmanuel Sama. Um, he passed away in 2011. He was a Zambian artist. And he painted biblical scenes and depicted them indigenized to his own culture. Contextualized, in his case, to African culture. And so now, in this painting... We are looking at this moment through the eyes of a Zambian artist. And what does he see? He sees that Jesus came to oppose the oppressor of the Zambian people in order to set Zambians free. Isn't that powerful? And I want you to know that Emmanuel Sama is exactly right in characterizing this moment in this way. He knows that this moment actually happened in Jerusalem. He knows that this moment actually happened among people who are ethnically Jewish. And yet he also knows that this moment happened for his people. This moment happened for Zambians. And he is exactly right. Listen, if Jesus is now raised from the dead and ascended into heaven. And that means that Jesus is the savior of all. He is the liberator of all. He is now everywhere present and fills everything everywhere with himself as the apostle Paul would write. 
You see, if Jesus is raised from the dead, then he really is the king of all people, all tribes, everywhere. The risen Christ is Jewish. He's also Arab, and he's also Oriental, and he's also Mexican, and he's also American, and he's also Russian, and he's also Haitian. He is the Haitian. He is the savior of all. Is everybody tracking? Here's a bit from a sermon by Martin Luther King Jr., and it's a good reminder of this weakness, the smallness in Jesus and his revolution. King says this, I know a man, and I just want to talk about him a minute. And maybe you'll discover who I'm talking about as I go down the way because he was a great one. And he just went about serving. He was born in an obscure village, the child of a poor peasant woman. And then he grew up in still another obscure village where he worked as a carpenter until he was 30 years old. Then for three years, he just got on his feet and he was an itinerant preacher and went about doing some things. He didn't have much. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family. He never owned a house. He never went to college. He never visited a big city. He never went 200 miles from where he was born. He did none of the usual things that the world would associate with greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He was only 33 when the tide of public opinion turned against him. They called him a rabble rouser. They called him a troublemaker. They said he was an agitator. He practiced civil disobedience. He broke injunctions. And so he was turned over to his enemies and went through the mockery of a trial. And the irony of it all is that his friends turned him over to them. One of his closest friends denied him. Another of his friends turned him over to his enemies. And while he was dying, the people who killed him gambled for his clothing, the only possession that he had in the world. When he was dead... He was buried in a borrowed tomb through the pity of a friend. You ever wonder why God chose to save the world through a peasant? And not through prestigious royalty? I think the answer to that question goes something like this. He came humble because he came to save the humble. He came small because he came to save the small. He came from a broken people because he came to save the broken. He lived on the margins because he came to save those on the margins. So there is a deep weakness, not only in this story, in this moment, but there is a deep weakness in God's agenda to rescue our world through the power of humble, weak, peaceable Love. And Jesus puts it on display here on Palm Sunday. We call this the triumphal entry. And that's okay. But you got to recognize that for us, when we hear the word triumph, we think by our definition of triumph. We think gold and silver and power and might and big and loud and intimidating. Right? When we think triumph, we think, right? So it's okay to call this a triumphal entry as long as you realize that this is, this, is tr- this is victory redefined. This is victory from the bottom up. This is victory from weakness through weakness. This is victory through self-emptying love. This is the new definition, the true definition 
of triumph. The final word you can write on your outline is this. Just write down the word choose. What I'd like to say to you at this point in our discussion is that at this point we get to choose which procession we like better. Something like that. Like, okay, now let's, let's decide which one of these two pro processions we prefer. And then let's get our popcorn and our shrimp on the stick and let's find a place along the curb and let's watch the parade of our preference, right? Like, I wish I could say something like that. You know, like, okay, so do you prefer Pilate's procession or do you prefer Jesus' procession? That's what I'd like to say right now because we all love a good parade. It's fun. It's entertaining, right? All those reasons. But I don't get to do that at this point in our reflection. I don't get to ask you which parade you prefer and then send you off to go watch the procession of your choosing. Instead, what I get to do today, my task, my role, is to take you a step further than that, a step further than mere preference. Um, and to say this instead, everybody, we are the parade. We are the procession, one or the other. Every moment of every day, we get to choose not which procession we prefer, but we get to choose which procession we will embody in our lives. Am I going to embody the procession of power and prestige and violence and domination? Or am I going to embody the procession of humility and weakness and restorative justice and peace? Which procession am I going to embody? That's the question for us. Here's more from Dr. King. He says, we must rapidly begin the shift from a thing-oriented society to a person-oriented society. When machines and computers, profit motives, and property rights are considered more important than people, then the giant triplets of racism, materialism, and militarism are incapable of being conquered. A true revolution of values will soon cause us to question the fairness and justice of many of our past and present policies. On the one hand, he says, we are called to play the Good Samaritan on life's roadside. But that will only be an initial act. One day, we must come to see that the whole Jericho Road must be transformed so that men and women will not be constantly beaten and robbed as they make their journey on life's highway. Does everybody see the difference? True compassion, he says, is more than flinging a coin to a beggar. True compassion comes to see that the edifice which produces beggars needs to be restructured. Everybody, that's what Jesus is doing 2,000 years ago on the day that we call Palm Sunday. He's saying this entire thing has got to be restructured. Does everybody see the difference? There is a difference. True compassion sees more deeply than the suffering on the surface. True compassion sees the systemic disease that's causing the suffering to begin with. You see, these words, these are the words of a man who has chosen 
which procession he will march in. These are the words of a man who's chosen to see with the eyes of a prophet. The man who's chosen the side of the humble, the left out, the overlooked. And it's time now for us. We get to choose which procession we will march in. We get to choose if we're going to slide into the procession of the powerful, where it sparkles and shimmers and glistens and glows, the procession of intimidating force and swords and chariots and spears, legitimated by the unthought that this is just the way things are, right? A religion all on its own. Or we get to choose the procession of the weak, the humble, the parade of restorative justice, the parade of peace through peaceable means. This is the procession of Jesus. So that's the proposition that I get to put before you today. And I know as a follower of Jesus, I already know your answer that you have in fact already chosen. You've already made your choice. That you're going to march in the procession of Jesus. You're going to choose the way of Jesus. So can I pray for you this morning before we're done?